Good afternoon and welcome to Ask the Docs, a Fertility Institute of Hawaii live stream. September is Polycystic Ovarian Syndrome, PCOS Awareness Month, and our topic is PCOS and Fertility. Thank you for joining us today. We have a lot of great information to share with you. My name is Dr. Emily Goulet, and I'm here with Dr. Anat Carmon. Nice to see you. All right, so let's get started. What is PCOS, Dr. Carmon? So PCOS, it's, it's, it's a lot of things, okay? It's a syndrome which encompasses a whole lot of things, but in short, um, it's a disorder which can cause fertility issues due to irregular cycles, um, imbalance of hormones, but it can also kind of cause some long-term health issues when it's not kind of taken care of and treated. And so I think um, we should talk about both of those and uh, you guys can kind of decide what your goal is and, um, and how to best move forward with treatment. Right. I think there are a lot of different definitions for what the criteria for PCOS is, depending on which uh, society you want to ask. But one of the most common sets of criteria, you have to meet two out of three of the three following criteria. One is signs of excess male hormones, signs of excess androgen hormones. And sometimes we can we can find that out just by looking at you or asking you, do you have unwanted hair growth? Do you have severe acne that you find bothersome? Or sometimes there are no visible clinical signs of it. And we have to pick that up by testing your hormones to see if you have an imbalance of testosterone or other male androgens. The second criteria, which you may have, are what we call polycystic looking ovaries. So the ovaries look like they are chock full of tiny eggs on the, um, typically on the periphery, on the outer layer of the ovary, um, or you have very large ovaries. And so that can be a second criteria. And then the third criteria is not regularly ovulating. And so women who skip periods typically, that's an easy one, like, oh, okay, you're skipping months at a time, you're not ovulating. But some women who do have regular monthly cycles, on um, further investigation, we find out that, oh, okay, something else is controlling the timing of those bleeds, but you're not actually growing an egg. So you have to meet two out of those three criteria typically in order to be diagnosed with PCOS. Right, and, and if you are diagnosed with PCOS in this type of fashion, then you're in very good company because about 20% of all women meet the criteria for PCOS. Um, and that probably dates back to um, the times when we kind of evolved um, as, as a human race here. So. Um, Again, usually when something is so common in the population, it serves some, some type of purpose. Uh, and so because PCOS has this very, very high prevalence, um, most likely it kind of served the purpose uh, at least long ago. And so patients with PCOS have kind of higher uh, hormone levels, higher testosterone levels, which tend to make them stronger. They are still oftentimes naturally fertile, but may have a little bit more trouble. Um, building their families. And so uh, instead of having lots and lots and lots of kids, uh, they might have a, a much smaller family, which then in turn um, kind of allows them to perhaps take care, conserve their resources and take care of the few children that they do have versus patients who are more fertile ended up with kind of way more children and, and perhaps 
um, didn't do as well in terms of managing them. Uh, and so those things together, kind of back in back in you know days where we were hunting and gathering, provided a benefit to women. Uh, also, the insulin resistance aspect of it, which we'll kind of get into a little bit, also provided women with PCOS a little bit more nutrition and ability to survive fasting times. Uh, and so that's probably why PCOS was sort of propagated uh, within the population and continues to be extremely common even now. So now, fortunately or unfortunately, it's not helpful to kind of do well during fasting periods. And uh, it's more frustrating than not that women with PCOS may have more trouble conceiving. Um, and, you know, that, that level of strength uh, in, in many women is probably um, seen as unnecessary, although I think, you know, at times kind of cool. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that, you know, now we look at things very, very differently, obviously. Uh, but I thought that that was kind of neat that, that uh, women with PCOS um, actually perhaps uh, provided a, a benefit to, to the society, you know, mankind. Day. Yeah. 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 PCOS presents in a spectrum. So no two PCOS individuals will come across with the exact same symptoms on one end of the spectrum. You, you may have what we call the, like the bearded lady syndrome, right? Where you where women can actually present with beards, right? Because they've got so much excess male androgen and uh, like the textbook uh, version of, of PCOS that we talk about is often associated with that insulin resistance and um, and uh, a heavier uh, body habitus. But on the other end of the spectrum, there are many women who get um, who are not adequately diagnosed because they don't walk in looking like someone who would have PCOS because they're thin, because they report that their menses are you know every 38 days. Um, and because they uh, they don't complain of any unwanted symptoms of the excess hair or excess acne. Yeah, um, so I think we can kind of talk about how we typically diagnose PCOS, what we what we usually do. And so some of the stuff we went over, for example, we do ultrasound um, to take a look to see what women's ovaries look like. We can uh, just take a history to determine if women are likely ovulating regularly, but there's also some blood work that we might do. We certainly might check testosterone levels to see if uh, that's elevated. If that's elevated, then that can kind of help meet that criteria for, for PCOS. There are also some other things that we might evaluate too. Uh, we might also evaluate other sources of androgens to determine if some of the symptoms are actually being caused by not PCOS, but testosterone being secreted from other places. So there are kind of some things that can mimic PCOS. For example, if the adrenal glands are producing too much um, uh, testosterone essentially, then, uh, then patients may sort of look like they have PCOS, but actually it's not an issue coming from the ovaries. Um, and so there's some blood work that we typically get to determine if, if that's an issue. We will also usually check um, something like a hemoglobin A1C, uh, which is a, a test for diabetes, or uh, we might also check um, sort of fasting, fasting glucose levels, or even do oral glucose challenge tests, depending on uh, on the patient and how suspicious we are for insulin resistance and diabetes. Women with PCOS are unfortunately, as I mentioned before, at higher risk for diabetes, and that's something that has to be watched 
uh, throughout the lifespan. And, and certainly it's not a guaranteed thing. It's not like all women with PCOS definitely will have diabetes, but it just means that, you know, they're predisposed to it. Right. Especially if there's a strong family history, which we often see because PCOS often has a genetic or a familial component. And so if your mom and your dad and all your aunties have developed diabetes and skipped periods and they had PCOS and you have PCOS, there's a strong chance that you have inclinations towards that as well. And so by knowing this and by by being proactive, every time you go in to see your primary care physician every year, you can say, hey, I've been told I have PCOS and I need to be vigilant about screening for insulin resistance, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and all of these other comorbidities, all of these other problems that can be associated with PCOS. On that note, I also tell my patients, um, you know, once once we get over their fertility issues, their long-term care is often well-managed by their primary OB-GYN or their primary care physician. And things to think about on the back burner is, you know, we want to make sure that their cholesterol levels look good. And so uh, getting those lipid profiles checked um, at least, you know, once every few years um, may also be something to think about. And that I want my women, in, unless they are hormonally suppressed, um, I want them to be having a bleed at least once every three months to reduce the risk of endometrial cancer, which individuals with PCOS can be at an increased risk of. Yeah, and so that's that's another thing that we always pay attention to. If somebody has um, kind of a thicker lining uh, on ultrasound and has not had a period perhaps in a year or more, uh, those are women that we may want to do an endometrial biopsy on, uh, which, which is a simple procedure that can be done in the office in order to evaluate for endometrial precancer or endometrial cancer. Thankfully, the treatments, both were actually endometrial, even endometrial cancer, um, nowadays uh, can involve uterine sparing uh, types of, of um, medical therapies. So basically we can even reverse uh, even full-blown endometrial cancer, at least temporarily by using progesterone and, and women may be able to actually have children prior, prior to proceeding with things like a, a hysterectomy in the future. That's something that we always have to watch out for, screen for, both with history, ultrasound, uh, and then when you're done, like Dr. Boulay was saying, trying to have uh, a baby or once you've kind of completed your family, um, going on some type of hormonal suppressive therapy or ensuring that you get kind of a bleed, a withdrawal bleed every three months um, will help prevent that, um, that risk for endometrial cancer. And PCOS really doesn't put you at risk for endometrial cancer if you're having regular periods. Um, it's really that irregularity that kind of build up of the lining without the proper shedding, which uh, puts patients at risk for that endometrial cancer and that unopposed estrogen um, as well. The other thing that I wanted to mention is um, because of some of the hormonal imbalances, insulin resistance, a lot of patients with polycystic ovary syndrome are at um, kind of, they, they find it harder to lose weight. They may be uh, they may be overweight, they may be obese, um, and it, it just may be harder for them to kind of to, to control that and get into a healthy weight. However, losing weight may help improve the symptoms of PCOS, but it doesn't take away PCOS. PCOS is not caused by weight gain. You know, it, it's, um, and similarly, it's not going to be cured by weight loss. Um, but maintaining a healthy weight is going to help with some of those 
some of those issues. It's going to help lower the risk for endometrial cancer. It's going to help um, increase fertility potential by potentially helping regulate ovulation, decrease risk for diabetes. So uh, certainly I'm not saying not to lose weight, but I also want patients to understand that they didn't sort of cause their own PCOS by, by gaining weight. Um, and it, it's usually fertility treatment that may help you achieve a pregnancy and not necessarily assuming that weight loss is going to fix things. Right, right. And so by all means, every doctor is going to say, we want you to maintain a healthy weight if you can. And especially if your BMI is over 30, aim to lose about 5% of your weight. But we know that that's not always easy to do. And so by all means, don't hesitate to reach out for help if you're struggling with infertility or if you're struggling with weight loss. There are lots of wonderful doctors out there who are expertise in the um, medical management and possibly bariatric surgical management of uh, helping with that weight loss to improve all of those comorbidities that are associated with PCOS, the metabolic syndrome, the cardiovascular disease, the diabetes. It should not be something that's just ignored and, and given up on because it's hard to lose weight. There are tools and ways that that can be helped. Yeah. And I think that the treatments for PCOS are really going to vary depending on your goal, right? So if your goal is um, to diminish symptoms, you're not really interested in family building right now, um, and perhaps you um, are trying to lower your risk for endometrial cancer, perhaps you're trying to regulate your cycles, um, uh, stop bothersome bleeding, um, then the treatment for PCOS is really going to focus on hormonal suppression um, and per perhaps helping with that insulin resistance. So even just taking birth control pills is actually going to help because what it does, it suppresses the production of testosterone within the ovaries, so it helps to kind of balance out the hormones in that regard. Um, and and uh, you'll find that obviously with birth control, you're either suppressing periods altogether or um, you're having a more regular cycle if you kind of take the placebo pills monthly. I do want to point out that if you're on a birth control pill, just like Dr. Boulay kind of briefly mentioned, it's okay not to get periods if you're on a birth control pill. It's not okay not to get periods if you're um, not on birth control. <laughs> okay. right. So it's a little bit of a confusing point, but what birth control pills are actually doing is they're really thinning out the lining. They're keeping the lining thin and they're giving you um, enough of, oh, I see someone hearted that. I must have said that's <laughs> something really good. Um, so it, it it keeps the lining thin and it just gives you enough estrogen and progesterone um, to uh, help keep you healthy in terms of, you know, things like your bone health, but also things like your endometrial lining um, and helps prevent um, issues with precancer or cancer development. Um, the other kind of thing to try would be a medication called metformin, which works through uh, making patients more sensitive to insulin. And so we do see that um, and, and it's a diet, you might have heard of it because it's a diabetes treatment. Um, and so metformin can kind of work through that pathway to actually help regulate cycles as well. Uh, and so you can use metformin, you can use kind of metformin in combination with birth control pills. There are also some other things that can be tried if some of the bothersome signs of testosterone excess are, are there, then um, things like spironolactone, uh, which will help kind of diminish um, the the uh, testosterone uh, in your system as well can be utilized. Um, for things like um, 
uh, hair, okay, excessive hair uh, in places where it shouldn't be. There are certain things, there's, for example, this cream called Vanica, if you guys have heard of that. Um, I maintain, and I think most people know that um, really it is hair removal, <laughs> uh, which is probably the most effective treatment uh, for any of, for, for any hair. Okay. So things like laser hair removal um, is going to be much more effective really than most of the medications. Um, and so that, that should be what's considered, although that's probably not uh, covered by insurance. Right. I tell my patients that for the managing the excess hair growth of PCOS, the medications are kind of like a band-aid. They're palliative. They, they might help improve it, but they're not going to fix it. And the way to really fix it would be with um, laser hair removal, uh, electrolysis, or just regular waxing appointments. Yeah. Um, then the other thing to, to consider um, is, you know, of course, if you're trying to conceive, then the treatment's going to take kind of a whole different direction, right? Because then you shouldn't take birth control pills. That's obviously going to stop you from uh, achieving your pregnancy. You, you shouldn't can't be on the spironolactone. You can't take yeah. spironolactone. Um, but what we can do and what seems to be really the most successful thing is what's called ovulation induction. Ovulation induction, which you might have heard us kind of talk about before, heard us talk about in the office if you're our patients, um, is the process where we give you medication to stimulate the ovaries. Uh, we may or may not do monitoring depending on where you are, who your physicians are. Uh, and then we kind of try to get your ovaries to ovulate on their own. This kind of indirectly also treats the symptoms of PCOS because it's sort of balancing out your hormone levels. Um, there, there's gonna, you're kind of getting that progesterone that you need um, because you're ovulating, right? And you'll get your periods. You're getting periods yeah. as long as you're not pregnant. And if you're pregnant, great, <laughs> then you're not going to, yeah. <laughs> yes. um, and so all, the, all of those things um, are, are going to also kind of work together to, to help your PCOS. Even metformin is also a treatment, um, probably metformin alone, not as effective as um, an ovulation induction agent. Um, but, you know, for various reasons that can be utilized. Right. Um, the main, the most commonly used medications that we use for ovulation induction usually start with an oral pill. Um, Nowadays, we are using letrozole, which is off-label use, but extremely effective. It's been well studied and been shown to be superior in some circumstances uh, compared to our oldie but goodie Clomid, which has been around since the 1950s. And so oftentimes we will start this ovulation induction with these oral pills and we may titrate or adjust the dose to see what dose it takes to get you to ovulate the way we want you to ovulate. That being said, anytime we do any fertility medications, we do increase the risk of twins and higher order multiples. And with letrozole, clomid, the risk of twins tend to be about 7%. And I warn my PCOS patients that if any of my patients are going to be the ones that get pregnant with twins, it's more likely to be them. Because one way I look at PCOS is that these ovaries have been hoarding eggs, if you will, by not having regular cycles. They've been saving them up. And when we finally do encourage them to drop those eggs, because they are overflowing with eggs, they might drop more than one egg at a time. And so uh, we, that is something that we counsel our patients about, that there is that increased risk of twins. That's okay for some individuals. It's not okay for every individual. But 
Uh, that's because twins do high, have a higher risk, higher obstetrical risks, higher fetal risks, maternal risks with those pregnancies. And so we very carefully monitor those cycles. And in rare circumstances, if we are worried that individuals might ovulate too many eggs, there is the risk that we might cancel the treatment. But typically we don't see that with the oral pills with either the letrozole or the Clomid, which can still be used. Typically that's with our third way that we induce ovulation, which is with injectable fertility medications, also known as gonadotropins. There's a couple of different brand names of gonadotropins that are out there, Folistim, Gonal F, Menopure, which you may or may not have heard of, but those medications are injectable medications that women give themselves at home in the evening and may be used in conjunction with those oral pills like Letrozole or Clomid. Um, but when we, we do bump women up to those injectables, either because they're not responding to the oral medications or because they haven't achieved a pregnancy after several rounds of the oral medications, it does require closer monitoring. And so people can expect to come in more frequently for those uh, ultrasound and lab work visits if we're doing injectables for PCOS. Yeah. Um, patients with PCOS are also at slightly higher risk for developing ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome if they're doing something like IVF or uh, even if they're using injectables just for IUIs or, although that's, uh, or ovulation induction, although that's less common. Um, and again, that's because there are typically just so many follicles uh, and even low doses of medication can cause the ovaries to get pretty large. And so the most severe cases of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome often will happen in, in these patients. So we do have to be careful um, and we will typically use lower doses of medication for things like IVF in these patients. Um, and then we'll also be very mindful of the type of uh, what's called trigger shot that we utilize. Um, and, um, and, and even afterwards, we may kind of use some various medications to help prevent this ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome from occurring. Very good. Um, and then pregnancy risk. Let's talk a little bit about being pregnant with PCOS. I tell my patients that because of that insulin resistance, they they do have a higher risk of developing gestational diabetes. And so that's something that they uh, need to talk to their OB about. They may need earlier screening for insulin resistance or gestational diabetes in pregnancy. And if they have some of the other symptoms that often go along with PCOS, like um, excess weight, uh, they may, and you know, if, if the BMI is over 30, they may be at increased risk for other problems like prematurity with the baby or preeclampsia, and just to have that discussion with your OB. And even postpartum, actually, um, women with PCOS may have a harder time breastfeeding as well, um, and that's partly due to the hormonal imbalance or uh, issues with breast development that occurred at the time of of puberty due to the hormonal imbalances uh, that happen with PCOS. So just another thing to keep in mind and really important to actually see a lactation consultant if you're at that point having issues. Yes, good, good point. Yeah. All right. Um, let's see, uh, other, are there any other symptoms that you can think about that patients sometimes, sometimes patients come to me asking me about their family members, their daughters, or their mothers who um, are going through menopause and are complaining of weight gain, or their daughters who are teenagers and are skipping periods, and when do they need to start worrying about 
um, helping those individuals with their PCOS symptoms. And in those circumstances, I encourage them to um, have those family members uh, reach out to their doctors, establish an appointment, treating adolescents and treating menopausal women while they may very well have PCOS is a little bit different than treating those who are reproductive age and are either aiming to get pregnant or are aiming to not get pregnant. So right. yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That does uh, make a big difference yeah. there. Yeah, um, I might even mention one more um, type of, of treatment, which is kind of rarely done at this point, but I see once in a while um, it, it sort of comes back into fashion is, is this ovarian drilling oh, yes. uh, procedure. So ovarian drilling is actually a surgical procedure where um, the ovaries are sort of essentially manually damaged. That might not be a nice way to put it, um, but because a lot of the, the syndrome of PCOS occurs because of all these, a lot of follicles and sort of the excess hormones that are being created by these follicles going in and sort of uh, doing some directed um, damage to some of those follicles will actually lead to improvement in, in the symptoms of PCOS. Uh, and it really does work. Um, there, there's plenty of, of literature uh, showing that, but I think that most patients and physicians would prefer to kind of use medical therapy rather than going the surgical route, which is obviously much more invasive. And the other thing that'll help is time and actually getting older, right? Because, you know, unfortunately, as, as we get older, we lose a lot of follicles. Um, and so, you know, the, the bright side of that is that if we have a history of PCOS, then that will improve our, our symptoms as well. Absolutely. I, uh, in where I trained, there was not a lot of great fertility coverage, but insurances would often pay for the surgical treatment of that ovarian drilling. And so I, I think there are some populations where insurance coverage would mandate surgical treatment over medical treatment, which is unfortunate medical treatment certainly is much cheaper and much more effective, but it is still the standard of care in some areas of the country. And so if that is something that you're considering or thinking about doing, talk to your doctor to see really how expensive would medical therapies be? Because most of the time now, those uh, Clomid, for example, is on the $4 Walmart list in every state outside right. of Hawaii and Alaska. And so we live in Hawaii, so right. everything's going to be more expensive, but uh, can can be a effective means uh, that's affordable without having to resort to permanently damaging some of the ovarian structures. Yeah, absolutely. I think that most reproductive endocrinologists and most um, uh, general OBGYNs do feel comfortable with a lot of fertility or, or a lot of therapy for PCOS and potentially even fertility treatment for PCOS because it's it's one of the simpler things to to treat. Um, not always, but uh, it is one of the um, uh, easier ways to or one of the syndromes that usually carry a pretty good prognosis in terms of achieving a pregnancy. Absolutely, I, I tell my PCOS patients, if I have, uh, I don't go to Vegas, I'm not a big gambler, but if I had to pick which of my patients I could get pregnant first, it's typically my PCOS patients. Right. I see something similar. I say if I had to pick an infertility diagnosis to have, I would pick uh, PCOS, you know, or male factor, then it's like not my problem. <laughs>
<laughs> well, and you know, this brings up a good point though. Um, so we talked a lot about ovulation induction and even injectables with ovulation injections um, or with injectable medication for ovulation induction for PCOS. But when would an individual with PCOS need IVF? Mm, yeah, good question. So uh, there are a couple reasons why somebody with PCOS might need IVF. First of all, there are other issues, right? So people with PCOS also can have blocked tubes. They can also have a male factor infertility, and they may also have a component of uh, sort of an additional unexplained component that we don't know about. So patients who are just unsuccessful with uh, multiple ovulation induction cycles, we might suggest in vitro fertilization, right? Because if it's not working, even though we're getting these patients to ovulate, well, then we might move on to in vitro fertilization. But there is another reason that we might consider, or another couple reasons, okay? So if we're not able to get a patient to ovulate with uh, ovulation induction, maybe with simple oral medication, and uh, maybe we try injectable medication, but with the low dosing, patients are just still not ovulating. We might try adding other things like steroids. We might add metformin and we might try all kinds of fancy techniques, but some of these patients just still don't ovulate. Um, or when they do, they bring everything, the right. whole party. <laughs> right, too many, yeah. So if we're having trouble getting these patients to ovulate or if um, their ovaries are just so robust that just giving them a little bit of medication, they just kind of release too many eggs in that case, doing in vitro fertilization makes sense because we're uh, much more likely to be able to um, help get eggs through, through in vitro fertilization. Um, and also, even if we get lots and lots of eggs, we can transfer just one embryo uh, to lower that risk for multiple pregnancies. So those are some of the reasons why we might consider moving on to in vitro fertilization for these patients. Good point. Yeah. All right, well, um, if there are any questions, now's the time to speak up. And thank you so much. We see there are some patients uh, giving us shout outs here. So uh, thanks for that. And then um, certainly you guys can continue to ask questions, comments um, on our feeds. Uh, and come see us if you guys need our help. So. Yes. Thank you for joining us today. This is an Ask the Docs, a Fertility Institute of Hawaii live stream. If you have any additional questions, please leave us a comment below and we hope you will join us again next time. Aloha. Aloha.